Linnaean. Linnaean. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Linnaean Society of London. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 A changing climate and its profound impacts on our way of life are not new phenomena. But the idea of reconstructing past climatic changes and measuring its impacts on humanity goes back to the 19th century. This relatively new branch on interdisciplinary research unpacks past experiences, failures and learnings to inform our current climate crisis and our response to it. Researchers are using a wide variety of historical documents such as ship logbooks, journals, correspondence to paint a vibrant picture of our past. For example, in this episode we will find out why ship logbooks are so helpful in climate reconstruction. and what does the longitude have to do with it our guest on this episode is environmental historian dr dagomar de groot dagomar is an associate professor of environmental history at georgetown university his work bridges the humanities and sciences to explore how communities have confronted changes in environments on earth and across the solar system for example who are the ones who survived climate change in the past and what can we learn from these resilient societies and ultimately what are the limits of resilience is climate change a tragedy or a tragic opportunity let's get started such a pleasure to be joining you my name is dagmar de groot i'm an associate professor of environmental history at georgetown university in washington dc i am the co-founder and co-director of the climate history network uh and the website historicalclimatology.com uh my first book the frigid golden age was published a few years ago it looks at and the complicated impacts of climate change on the Dutch Republic during a period of climatic cooling called the Little Ice Age. I'm now working on a whole bunch of projects um that have to do with resilience to past climate change, relationships between climate change and conflict, and the environmental history of outer space. Uh, historians of climate and society or HCS scholars. We mm. do uh work in many different disciplines from genetics through archaeology through history to study the full 300,000 year history of our species. The idea that climate had an impact on human affairs goes back for thousands of years. The idea that that climate changes could influence the fate of populations probably goes back to antiquity as well. And you can even see hints of this in um the myths of a flood, right? Of of Noah's flood in terms of its modern incarnation. which is really the idea that we can use aspects of the natural world that changed when climate changed and that can now stand in for instrumental measurements in the pre-industrial period that we can use those kinds of sources to reconstruct climate so to figure out how climate changed and then we can determine how humanity was impacted by those changes that idea really goes back to the 19th century what kind of historical documents and inscriptions hold climate change information and depending on the resolution of the data of course can these be interpreted to insert into statistical modeling they can include chronicles so these were kind of like almost like journals i guess kept by a chronicler um for decades or even longer that recorded what happened to a particular community they mm-hmm. can include diaries so kind of similar right but but now written for personal reasons um they can include correspondence so people might be talking about the weather most usefully in my work they can include ship logbooks uh 
Starting around the 15th century, um, ships, European ships, started really leaving the coast uh, and the familiar coast in particular in large numbers because of various technological improvements and cultural changes. Um, and when they started to do that, they had to figure out their longitude and their latitude. Latitude was pretty easy, but longitude, that issue was uh, complicated. In fact, impossible to really estimate accurately all the way through the 18th century and even the 19th century when the marine chronometer was widely introduced. So before that point, you couldn't really figure out your longitude. And as a result, the best you could do was dead reckoning, which is a series of sort of calculations uh, where you estimate your course and your speed um, since leaving a known landmark and anything that was kind of pushing you in one direction or another, which was, of course, most importantly in the age of sail, the wind. So ship logbooks have um, systematic accounts of wind direction and velocity, um, especially after the uh, 16th and early 17th centuries. Mm. And they can also tell you about sea ice, for example, um, if ships are sailing far into the Arctic or they're sailing in the winter. And, you know, they can even include records of precipitation. So in my work, logbooks are really critical. Then there's another group of documents that shed um, light on activities that, you know, we know were influenced by weather. The accounts of how ships are paying dues um, as they pass through um, ports, that would be an example of the second category of document. So um, these are not direct records of weather, right? They are records of activities that must have been very importantly influenced by weather. Or accounts of, again, harvest dates. Right? If, um, if the harvest dates vary, um, well, that might mean that it's warmer or cooler, wetter or drier. So there's a lot of these kind of quantitative accounts um, of activities, again, that, that would have been powerfully influenced by temperature or precipitation in particular, or by atmospheric circulation. Uh, and documents are not the only kind of sources that historians can use. We might also use oral histories, uh, right. for example, or we might work with linguists to determine linguistic changes over time. So as in, when did words uh, show up in certain languages that relate to climate change? Or? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. What you can do is actually figure out the rate of change in a language and then determine, okay, when did words enter that language? Uh, and if you know that, you can figure out, okay, when did words, let's say, for wet environments begin entering mm -hmm. languages, right? And that can be a kind of very rough proxy for climate change, but it can also shed light on how uh, populations are responding to climate change. And as you can imagine, that can be very, very beneficial for non-literate societies, right? If you're trying to figure out um, how populations beyond the literate world are responding to climate change, that's a kind of source that could be really revolutionary. What were the major past instances of a changing climate? that stick out in past records? What we mostly study is a more recent period because that's when we start to get historical records. Really what we call high resolution, so very precise mm. cli climatic reconstructions. So that would be the geological epoch of the Holocene and within the Holocene, particularly the last few thousand years. In that period, before the, of course the onset of anthropogenic warming, climatic mm. changes were globally relatively modest in scope. And so really, the biggest fluctuations you see are several tenths of a degree Celsius in magnitude. But on a local and a regional level, those, the consequences of those changes 
and other modes of internal variability could be much more extreme. So you could have, for example, mega droughts, droughts that lasted for decades that altered the fates of societies, um, or you know, globally modest but regionally very severe cooling uh, that did much the same by, let's say, altering growing seasons. So on a local and regional scale, even those globally modest changes of the last few thousand years could have profound impacts on societies. Can you draw any inferences from your studies as to what are the traits in societies uh, which thrived during climatic change and, and what are the lessons? I mean, what do we need to replicate or what would help us? Populations that minimize inequality seem to do better in the face of climatic changes because, and this is probably kind of obvious maybe, but when climate changes in a way that reduces growing seasons or interrupts those growing seasons, so there's less food to go around, right? Where is the starvation going to come from? It's usually going to come from people who are at the bottom of the social economic pyramid, right? So mm -hmm. those polities that are able to minimize that kind of inequality, um, they tend to have, they, they tend to suffer less uh, in the face of climatic changes. So going back to the Dutch Republic, which was, you know, in its colonial period, kind of an engine for inequality globally. But within the Republic itself, within the present day Netherlands, roughly, especially in its coastal cities, there was a robust tradition of civic charity. Um, so that the poor were treated better in those cities than they were most other parts of the world. Um, so as, partly as a result of that, when food prices did go up, um, the poor didn't starve uh, like they did elsewhere. Um, in the pre-Columbian period, those populations that were not too dependent on sort of capital-intensive investments, interventions uh, in um, environmental systems, whether that, that be canals or intensive irrigation frameworks, etc., could be more flexible in the face of climatic changes, could migrate more easily, for example or could more easily rely on, again, these kinds of diverse sources of food. So it's that kind of flexibility and diversity um, that also historically seems to have been a trait of relatively resilient and adaptive societies, societies that seem to have done well in the face of climatic changes. I wondered if the earlier times when there were climate change adaptations happening, if societies learned from each other and whether that's something we can lean on as as a way of thriving through such periods? Most famous example have to do with the Norse in Greenland, where we can very clearly see that the Norse are not learning from their uh, Thule neighbors. Mm -hmm. So the Thule are kind of a culture that became the Inuit. Migrated into Greenland actually after the Norse arrived, had technology that was more accommodated for that environment. Um, and there's no evidence of the Norse ever learning to adopt that technology um, in order to better adapt to climatic cooling, which is maybe one reason why they disappeared. So in that case, you see an example of a population that did not learn, most likely mm. because of cultural reasons. Migration, of course, migration then and migration now. Today, yeah. when we talk about migration, it's, you know, it's geopolitical, it's about refugee movement, it's about borders. I'd say the last 2,000 years, if you're talking about migration across borders, mm. I would say there are few beneficial lessons to be learned from that because that was often 
a major cause of of violence, right, and and warfare, particularly yeah. between pastoralists and uh, sedentary agriculturalists. So you see this repeatedly in the history of China. You see it also with the collapse of the uh, Western Roman Empire, right? Mm. This, in this um, movement of migrants into the empire, maybe influenced partly by drought. But historically, <laughs> I think there are some pretty um, destructive lessons that can be learned about how to accommodate migrants. But at the same time, another lesson, a contradictory lesson maybe, is that migration is one of the most effective adaptations in the face of climate change. So I think what you can learn from the past then, we shouldn't um, create a taboo sort of around migration or criminalize even worse migration because it's going to take off. And what we should really learn and, and work on and develop policy solutions to is how to fairly and uh, generously accommodate migrants where they go, right? Um, partly because it strengthens our societies, frankly, right, where the migrants go, but also because of, well, social justice reasons. Um, and because if we don't do that, we're more likely to have violence, right? So mm -hmm. I think the past tells us that, our conscience tells us that. Do you, do you ever feel that Talking about resilience in the past will just give more ammunition to policymakers who are climate change deniers. are like, well, this has happened in the past. We can deal with it when it happens. Yes, I, I have that fear. Yeah. <laughs> De definitely. And so I think when you do talk about resilience, it's important to emphasize resilience has limits, right? We, we can be resilient in the face of a little ice age, for example. Any luck will be resilient. We can be resilient in the face of warming of two degrees Celsius or so. Above that, it becomes very difficult. It's already difficult, frankly, but it becomes more and more difficult. There's a point at which no uh, society, no system of government and uh, economy can be resilient. It's really important to emphasize that the best kind of resilience is still mitigation reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The more you do that, the less you have to undertake costly and potentially, depending how much it warms, impossible uh, adaptations uh, to develop resilience. So that's really important. Another thing, and this is kind of related, is that when we talk about the resilience of societies, let's say, after the Neolithic, mm. after the emergence of agriculture, um, that's resilience to climate change is that at least on a global scale, are vastly smaller uh, than the climate changes that we have set in motion. Frankly, smaller than the climate changes that we have already undertaken. Right? The little ice age you're talking about, a cooling of maybe at most 0.5 degrees Celsius in the Northern Hemisphere. So we've already warmed the Earth more, we've already changed Earth's climate more than it has changed in the history of human complex, again, so-called complex civilization. So that is just to point out that whenever we write about resilience in that period, in the Holocene, this is resilience to relatively small climate changes. And that should really give us pause when we contemplate where we're going in the future. Lastly, I mean, has your study of the past um, left you a pessimist or an optimist? I've been described as an optimist. <laughs> um, I think I might sound optimistic because I've all, I'm already sort of resigned to what will happen. <laughs> And in, in my opinion, what will happen is, is the Earth will change dramatically over mm. the course of this century. And in the best case scenario, in my view, we limit warming to two degrees Celsius. That seems much more possible now, in my view, than it did three years ago even. But even if we do, 
um, sea levels will continue to rise for centuries, barring some kind of unforeseeable technological fix. Um, and, and as a result, the earth will be dramatically different for our children and for our grandchildren, for ourselves even, um, than it has been. And a lot is going to be lost. A lot of biodiversity will be lost. A lot of cultural heritage will be lost. A lot of lives will be lost. That doesn't mean that our response to those changes need be um, destructive necessarily, right? We can use this opportunity, this tragic opportunity, to build a better world, a more equitable world, a more sustainable world, uh, a more just world, right? And, and that's what the Green New Deal and other similar legislation is, is getting at. This is an opportunity to build a better Earth. I still lament what's going to be lost. I hope that my children will be able to benefit from things like the Green New Deal, but I also am deeply sad at what they will not be able to see and experience. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Future.